0: Now, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on the phone, as always, is co-host Alan Niven and special guest uh, Kevin Godley, of course, from uh, 10CC, Godley and Cream, and all that great stuff from way back then. Uh, New album is out now called Muscle Memory. And as we say in Montreal, uh, bonjour, Kevin. Comment allez-vous? How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, You know, I'm actually... Great, and I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about this interview. And I just, I'll, I'll start with this you know, in the 80s, you know, 81, 82, 83, when videos were coming out on MTV and much music, you know, a lot of the videos were either performance videos or just some dude standing in a factory with, you know, a camera following them. And yeah. Godly yeah. and Cream came around and you started doing every breath you take and you started doing view to a kill and you started doing what everybody wang chung tonight and your work this is my opinion but your work specifically defined the era when you look back at the 80s and you look at what was going on visually you have to put you know Wayne Ishams on there for the heavy metal stuff and you have to look at you and you go yeah that that team defined the 80s and so so you know just thank you for that cuz it it was phenomenal phenomenal work um so i just wanted to throw that out there and we'll we'll get to the to the new album and stuff but i i just had to say that so so thank you for what you did back then cuz technically you had to create something cuz the technology wasn't really there so good job
1: well no it was it was pretty basic it was analog video and uh, but we kind of approached it like we approached everything else we 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 came up with ideas that we wanted to see live on screen. Uh, and luckily enough, when we presented them to the various artists that we worked with, they thought so too. So we were, we were kind of lucky in that we were allowed to make these kind of strange little films. But uh, they translated very well. You know, oh. Audiences like them as well, which is always a bonus.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and I noticed with Kevin, your new video, Kevin. expecting a message, you're still doing it. So, um, but uh, Alan, I will yeah. defer to you because I know you you're you've, you're particularly thrilled with the new album.
2: Um, well, let's just stay on video for a moment. I, I okay. want to say, Kevin, that you and you and Lowell were a godsend at that period, <laughs> because <laughs> as as a manager. Um, trying to get a band signed, trying to get a decent budget, trying to get a video budget. The next battle that you had was dealing with the most appalling literalism from the production companies that were around in those days. And my biggest concern was the onslaught of video was going to take away the imagination of the audience in what is fundamentally an oral experience and that really worried me that we were going to literalize songs and take away people's ability to apply their own experience and imagination and when your videos yes. came out i was like thank god somebody's doing something that's not literal so i have to say a big thank you oh that's well, all right i mean we, we
1: always made a, a point of staying away from telling any stories it was like you know if you tell a story, if you tell the story of the lyrics, the people in the story are inevitably not going to be the same people as your listeners want to see. They want to they want to imagine stuff uh, and how it relates to their own lives. So we kind of steered away from that. We did our approach was always a little bit more left of field, and we were about framing the song really rather than telling
2: the story. Uh, can I can I ask you to? Um... One of the things that, 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 that intrigues me is you were a member of, uh, from my point of view, um, a band that didn't didn't have the hosannas that it richly deserved. I think Ten C were one of the underrated bands of that period. And there's a particular yeah. song, I'm sure you know which one. That I'd love to talk to you about its production. But how yeah. did you transition? How did you transition from being a drummer, writer, musician into video? How did that transition work for you?
1: Well, first of all, you have to understand that we we came from a visual background. At least me and Lol did. We were at art college for a load of years before we even got into the music business, so our grounding was in visuals. And so it, it was just a natural switch. We had a, we had a single out, a Golden and Cream single out called An Englishman in New York towards the end of the 70s, and not the same song as Sting, obviously. And right. we weren't touring, but we weren't a touring band or anything, um, so we thought it might be interesting to make a, a little film to go with it. And uh, so we took the idea to the record label and they said, yeah, that's fine. Uh, but we'll have to get a proper director to direct it. You, you, you guys just be the artists. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it was probably the right. Well, it was probably the right decision. We didn't know a, a camera from a camel um, at that stage. But but during that whole process. We 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 hung on every word. We 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 soaked up the whole process because it, it sort of brought it brought together everything that we took delight in. it was music, it was pictures, it was everything. and for the first time in our in our professional lives, we felt like we were at the beginning of something um, because of that, you know back in those days, there was no video industry as such. there were just the odd people making the odd clip for the odd bound. And we just talked to yeah. it like, Yeah, exactly, because there weren't that many places where you could show some. So we just took to it like ducks to water. And and luckily, after that record came out, it was a hit in Europe. uh, People started coming to us and asking if we'd make films for them. And it worked to a great extent because we came from a musical background, and therefore bands and artists felt more comfortable. Talking to people like us, I think, I think mean, that helped us an, amount, an immense amount.
2: Well, you ended up doing what? You must have done at least half a dozen videos of Sting one way or another.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we we got in, involved with, with the police just as they were going from big to mega. Um, and we filmed a concert with them. Uh, we filmed a concert with them twice. Uh, once in a club, I think it was in Toronto, and then in a stadium. Uh, so we we covered the same material twice, once when there was sort of a middle ground act, and then again when they were huge. And then they naturally gravitated towards us because we'd become friends, to do things like every breath, synchronicity to, wrap around your finger.
0: Let me, let me just ask and you... Uh, f- from back then, just to, just to be uh, just to be, uh, 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 the police released something like live at the uh, Atlanta Omni, and they also did the Spectrum in Montreal. Are those the two that you did?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, okay. All right. I just wanted to be sure. But sorry, sorry for cutting you off. <laughs> no,
1: that's okay. That's okay. So yeah, we got to work with them a
0: lot. So, um, go ahead, Alan.
2: No, you go ahead. Okay, go yeah,
0: ahead. I actually want to just quickly get to it to muscle memory because this, this has been an album that has been at least three years in the making. Uh, it, it was yeah. it was a pledge music thing, and of course, pledge music basically uh, were charlatans and, and sort of ripped off everybody, and then disappeared into the night. And so you had to uh, regroup and 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 restart, but. The the initial concept was that you invited musicians publicly to send you music for this album, and you were going to you, you were going to assemble it, uh, and release it. Is that the final product? So when we're listening to Muscle Memory now, was yeah, there a bunch? Okay, mean, please explain.
1: Well, what, yeah, I mean, pledge music was hugely instrumental in getting the project off the ground. Even though it fell apart, it, it, without Pledge Music, I wouldn't have got any of the the tracks in that I ended up playing and, and turning into songs. It was, um, it, the whole thing started it purely, purely by accident, in a sense, and nothing to do with me. Two people, two totally unconnected people, sent me two pieces of music around about 2016, and asked if I'd be interested in composing a song and performing it over the top of these pieces of music. And I'd never done that before. So I so I tried, and I enjoyed it. It was it was exciting to do. Uh, the two tracks ended up on the album, incidentally. One one is Expecting a Message, and the other is Periscope. Um, but I thought it was a great idea uh, as, a, as a way of, getting an album together because I, I'm a drummer I don't play an instrument so drums aren't the best instrument to write songs to um, so I, I kind of threw this invitation out there and uh, by a pledge not really expecting to get a, a huge response but I, I got sort of 286 pieces of music back um, which kind of it sort of overwhelmed me at the beginning. Um, but once I actually got stuck into the process, it was it was tremendously exciting, partially because I didn't know the people I was working with, and I still haven't met any of them other than Gautier, who I wrote one with. But it, that sort of element of mystery uh, and reacting to pieces of music that I wouldn't normally uh, have found that accessible was, was great for me. It was really good fun. So that's how it all began. It ended up where it is now with State 51 Conspiracy because when Pledge fell apart, they picked up the project and gave me uh, enough money to actually complete it.
0: Well, it it turned out great. Alan, I know you have a song in particular that attracted you. So so ask him, uh, you know, let's get into that. I'm curious about this.
2: Well, when I was looking over the song titles, there was one that just all leapt up and lit up to me, and I went, oh, here we go. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. And I'm going to ask you, Kevin, can you pick which title it was that just jumped off the screen at me? I
1: have no idea, because I don't know you. So I, I, would it be Song of Hate?
2: No, it was All Bones Are White. Ah, and, okay, that and, was the
1: first. That, that was the first song I wrote. Strange wow,
2: because just the title itself in this day and age went, boy, I want to know what this is about, because this, is, this, <laughs> this could definitely inspire a reaction just by its title. And right. tell me, where did the inspiration for the content come from? Tell me about the song.
1: Well, it was, it was the first song, uh, originally the backing track that, that I had, the instrumental piece, um, it came from an English guy called Giles Pering and the original title was Y.K. Blue. Um, and, I, you know, it didn't really mean a great deal to me, but when I sat down to to compose a song over it, it, it was at the same time as as all the nastiness was going on in Charlottesville uh, in 2017. Ah. And I was listening to this at the same time as watching the images of Charlottesville on television. And it suddenly became the soundtrack to, to what I was watching, and the words just started to flow. I was so appalled by by what I was watching. I just couldn't believe it in this day and age and and felt that I have to say something about it. But in my own way, um, like all the songs on the album, they're not not directly uh, attacking anything specific or talking about anything specific. But in this case, the lyrics um, just grew out of what was really going on in the world, like pretty much everything on the album. Uh, and they just turned out uh, this particular song was was a huge confidence booster for me because it being the first attempt, if you like, um, mm-hmm. with all the new material, it was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. I wasn't really setting out to do anything this, this dark or this political, but what the hell? <laughs> this is the world we live in
2: well that 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 track definitely has a very defined atmos to it, and that yeah. in itself, I mean you know you know as a bit of a songwriter myself, if you can get a little bit of atmos, you you're on your way. Um, and of course, it's interesting because you're in the, in a situation where you're applying um a point of view to a music bed already. Um, which was something I had to do for years. But I, I eventually got to a point where I found, you know what, I know how to write a song. Why don't I just put the content down first and have the content yeah. described the meter, the syllable count, the rhythm. There are inherent note values in the words that you choose, so on and so forth. And, and I got a, a liberation that way. But um, I, I got to tell you, that song is really, really powerful. And uh, Yeah, That's it great. must be pretty That's scary some it must be pretty scary sometimes sitting in beautiful Ireland and watching what is going on in other places and wondering where the hell are we going?
1: Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, that kind of crops up and probably, I mean, the other song that that comes to mind when you're talking about that kind of world is is the bang-bang theory. Um, Yeah. It is. I mean, America has always been a source of amusement one way or another. Sorry about that. But it, it 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 seems it seems to it seems to exaggerate all the good points and all the bad points of everywhere else in the world. And it's very and uh, although what's been going on there isn't particularly funny, I I can't but help but apply a sort of satirical, cynical attitude towards it, and, and but I kind of feel at home in that. Uh, place Um,
2: but that that particular song sorry well i I was i was was just going to say didn't you once use the name runcible spoon satire is obviously a part of your makeup
1: (laughs) well hang on a minute (laughs) hey we didn't call ourselves uh and the runcible spoon uh, that was that name came out of I think it was Giorgio gomelski's head back in the nineteen sixties. I couldn't think of a worse name if I sat down and wrote for a week. <laughs> uh, what a fucking name! I mean, please. Now it sounds like there should be seven in the band, right? And there are only two yeah. of us. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know I can I can't help but but look at what's going on I have sometimes it's very dark sometimes it's very serious but there is always a little bit of of of, of humor in in what I do I think I'm have you have you been watching the series uh, Black Mirror
0: Yes Occ-
2: occasionally, it's, I find it very right. disturbing, and it doesn't make me feel good when I finish watching an episode. Correct.
0: I feel okay.
2: Left a centre. It's
0: like watching CNN. Right yeah.
2: Center. Yeah. It makes me. It doesn't. It doesn't make me feel that good. And and of course, you know, in these COVID times, I don't know about you, Kevin, but. I spend an awful lot of time in front of a screen these days to keep myself distracted and amused, and uh, yeah. you know, part of the problem is trying to find things that make you feel good about humanity.
1: There are not there aren't many of them, are <laughs> That's the problem.
2: Yeah.
0: Is, uh, yeah that is the truth?
2: Inter- I'll tell you. Let, let, let's let's go to something feel good.
0: Yeah, I I actually okay. want to go to Ten CC for a little bit because this is a band. There's a band I love called Thunder who who have covered you in concert and just a lot of great music. Um I, I want to ask you to to the point where you we get to How Dare You and you decide that it's time to to move along. Um, yeah, what what was going on with the band? Where because you know you had a modicum of success. Maybe North America was maybe more difficult than 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 the UK and that's just a perception. I don't even know if that's uh, factual. Um, But it seems to me you got to a point where you just said, okay, I just don't want to do this music thing anymore. I just need to step back and I'm going to go do something else. Um, What was going on with the band where where you got to that point in 70, I guess 76 or 75, 76? You just went, I I need to step out.
1: Well, it probably sounds sounds very self-indulgent now talking about it. But the thing that always... Appeal to me about uh, about making records, um, and I guess it's it's from from the off. It was it was kind of going into a studio, and even if we'd written a song, or even if we were finishing a song, or whatever, it was approaching the recording process not knowing what we'd come up with, not knowing how things would would turn out. That was part of the excitement of of the process. When we were about to do How Dare You, I've, there was I have a very vivid memory of a meeting, almost like a pre-production meeting that we had before beginning to record. And it was once something like this it was like, OK, well, we need a we need a long one with sort of lots of voices in, a bit like I'm not in love. We need a couple of funny ones. We need one of your sort of complicated, arty ones, Kevin Law. In other words, what was sort of happening was we got to a point in our musical careers where we could define who we were, who our audience was, and what was required uh, to keep going and to keep successful. And uh, most normal people would be very happy with that, but a lot of myself were weren't it was like okay this now it's getting boring and we were kids we were still young we we, we i think before we even got into how dare you we had ideas for things for, for music that that wouldn't have really fitted with the 10cc template at all so. and it was we'd kind of run out of steam creatively um Somehow, we worked very hard together for four years and came up with some good stuff. But when this, this new attitude hit home, it was like, oh, God, we've got to write a long, complicated one. We've got to write a funny one. Uh, and it all became, it became very predictable. And that was not the thing that drove us ever so we bailed.
2: Kevin, I'm, Pre- I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to slightly disagree with you, if I may. Um, By all means. And the, and the reason I'm going to disagree with you is you said that you sound, you said this might sound indulgent. And it doesn't sound indulgent to me at all. In fact, it sounds being far more honest and true to your sense of creativity. And one of the perspectives that I have looking back is that, uh, you know, up to the early 70s, I think we all looked for people to do something fresh and innovative in a subsequent release. But once the record labels started selling mega records, then they started to go back and demand of their artists to give me another one just like the other one. Um, I I don't think you are being... um, indulgent I think you're just being a true artist but while we're still on feel good and you mentioned the name obviously as a huge fan of the song I've got to indulge myself and ask you about not in love which I will state time and again to anybody is one of the all-time best singles it's definitely up there with all the great singles and it's a magical, magical recording. Please tell me how many overdubs of vocals did you perform? And am I right in thinking that those vocals eventually got routed through a keyboard and got played as notes? Am I right in that? You're
1: close, but not not quite. I, I think there was there was must have been probably about three hundred and fifty. Um, different vocal wow. things going on. But wh- how we actually did it was, okay, so first thing you should know is that originally, we'd already recorded this song once um, when we men- went in to make original soundtrack. We'd recorded it. It was one of the first tracks we recorded but we made a terrible hash of it. We recorded it as some kind of cheesy boss and and we thought, <laughs> oh, that's no, you can imagine, you know. No, no, oh, oh Jesus! And so we we unanimously thought that's that's not that's not good enough. So we shelved it and we we carried on carried on working on the album, and knowing at some point we'd we'd be going back to it because people were sort of humming it in 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 and around the studio. So as a song, it worked. It's just we just didn't come up with the right treatment. So. We had a meeting about it again to discuss how the hell we were going to bring it to life. And out of desperation, I suggested, "Why don't we do it all with voices? A little bit like the the theme music from 2001, that sort of haunting, bizarre uh, music that was all the way through the movie." And then everybody said, "Yes, but how?" And the way we, the only way we could have done it was. We made tape loops, um, very long tape loops. The three of us, that's myself, Lol, and Graham, went into the live room and sang a note. And then that was turned into a loop, and we sang another loop, and then that was turned into a loop, and that went on for weeks. Um, and once we had that, once we had that, we fed all the loops into the 24-track T- onto the 24 track tape and set the mixing de- desk up, routed all the different notes to the mixing desk on different faders so when you push this group of faders uh-huh. up, it, it created a chord, when you push this group up it created another chord, so in a sense we didn't use a keyboard, we treated the console like a keyboard
2: Aha uh-huh. Genius
1: well, it was, what was fun was, you know, to to do that today would be a piece of piss. You press a button, get a sample, and play it on a keyboard. But this was analog days, so we 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 had to come up with strange ways of doing things because they didn't exist. Um, and that's what was great about the process back then. It was analog. You had, you had to sort of knuckle down and do things physically to bring things to life. Um, Mm -hmm. and it certainly brought that to life, that's for sure we were, once we'd finished recording it, and I have to say that all the sessions for the song, every single thing that we added at every stage just made it better, and that doesn't happen very often Um, and we when we finished it, we lay on the floor of the studio and played it ad nauseum, knowing we had something kind of special
0: I want to ask you this, in terms of... um uh creatively rewarding what is more creatively rewarding for you making music you know doing songs like cry and doing that kind of stuff or is it the video that gets you or is it are they absolutely equal for you
1: they're equal they just appeal to different parts of my dna but but they require different things from you um Making music, or in my experience, making music is a much more, um, it's much, you're working with less people when you're making music, fundamentally. Um, Apart from having an engineer, you're really all doing the same thing. You're playing instruments, uh, and then you're singing. Um, But when you're making a film, be it a feature or a commercial or, or a music video, you're working with a number of departments, all of which have a, a different sense of what you're trying to achieve. And all, you know, the wardrobe department will have an idea about how the cast might look or the, the camera department might have an idea about which lenses they want to use or which lights they want to use, uh, the set designer and so on and so forth. So you are dealing with a lot more people, so it's harder in many respects to keep your original vision alive if that makes any sense. What usually happens though, is that they add to your original vision as opposed to detracting from your original vision but they are they are very different processes um, because you know making a video is is really about coming up with an idea. Going on set and shouting a lot and getting people to do stuff for you. Um, well, it is, you know, way, you know, okay, let's do that again, let's do it better, let's do it worse, let's try it like this, stand on your head, you know, and then, and then you find yourself in the edit suite and you're with an editor and then you really craft what you've managed to achieve on the shooting days. When you're making music, it's, it's, it's kind of a more it's a more personal experience. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like sculpting air when you're making music. It's, and nothing really exists until it exists. Whereas with a film, there are rushes, you know, there's a, there's a point where you know what you've got is going to work. And then there's, there's enough time to fuck it up if you want to, Uh, but there's enough time to make it better too with, with, with a piece of music. It's, It's a lot sort of wavier than that. It's a lot foggier and you're constantly groping for something you don't quite know what it is. But if you're lucky, you find it and there's a certain point where the song or the recording will start to lead the way as opposed to you leading the way, which is always a great thing.
0: And uh, I'll I'll remind folks that uh, Muscle Memory is the new album. And I'll ask you one last, or I'll, I'll give you one last compliment, and then I'll I'll hand it over to Alan to to wrap it up. But uh, just just as a child of the '80s myself, I just wanted to say that, uh, and I was a heavy metal fan when I saw the Power okay. of Love by Frankie Goes to Hollywood and the treatment you gave it, and Everybody Have Fun <laughs> Tonight. Uh, you know those videos impacted me because I would not have listened to Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I would not have listened to Wang Chung. And, and, and even Every Breath You Take, had it not been for what I, my eyes were seeing, the eye candy that was going on, I would have ignored it. And and The Power of Love by, by Frankie Goes to Hollywood is, is just one of those moments where you just realize, wow, there's more to life than just Kiss and Aerosmith. And you go, wow. And and your video had a lot to do with that. So thank you for that. You You... You helped define, my, and of course, the, uh, the the Beatles' real love. I mean, you know, hey, doing a Beatles video in 1996. Uh, Alan, so thank you for, for that. And <laughs> Alan, last words. Go ahead.
2: Well, you almost asked a question that was floating around in my mind. And I was going to suggest to Kevin, imagine you're on a contemporary Titanic and it's going down. And to get into the lifeboat, you are allowed to... Offer one thing that you've created to get a seat in the lifeboat. My question Kevin. to you, Kevin, is: is it not in love, or is it every breath you take, or a different video? Which are you most proud of?
1: You're asking me which which videos i most proud of, yeah?
2: No, no. Well, if 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 you if you to get into the lifeboat, you can offer one thing that you've created. Being Anything. part of the creation okay. of, yeah. Now, okay. would it be not in love, or would it be a video?
1: It would be a TV program, actually. Oh, um, really? Really? Uh, in 1990, um, I had an idea. I was asked by the BBC to to come up with an idea um, for a music show to to conclude two weeks of environmental concern broadcasting and they wanted some kind of music show to finish it. And they were thinking along the lines of Live Aid and so on and so forth. And they, they called me in to see if I had any ideas. And I did have an idea, but it wasn't a concert. The, the idea, you, if, the, the, the film ended up being called One World, One Voice. And the idea was to start a piece of music in one piece of part of the world and film it being made. Then take that piece of music around the world and have it added to by whichever musicians were in the town we landed in and have them add to it and extend it. So by the end of the process... Well, that was it. It ended up with a piece of music made by, I think it was about 250-odd musicians from around the world, filmed and edited and put together. Uh, The visuals were done by myself. The sound was done by Rupert Hine. And that, more than anything, is something that I am, to this day, uh, proud of, because it, it has a life beyond just an interesting piece of art or entertainment. It was done for a a good reason. Um, And it's it's an extraordinary piece of work, and the experience was extraordinary to go, you know, from Paris to Africa, to Russia, to to the Netherlands, to Ireland, and and have people respond uh, to a piece of music that they'd never heard before. And watch something new come together from something that existed. That, that would be my offer. Do I get thrown off the boat or
0: what? No, no, you get to keep no, it. You, you get no, to stay. No. And there's a lot of people on no, there. You, there's you, Peter Gabriel. There's David Gilmore. Africa Bombada, There's uh, Laurie Anderson. Susan Vega. I mean, it just—I remember this actually. This, oh. was, this was something. This was quite something. Yeah. Go ahead. Alan. It was. No,
2: on, 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 on that one, Kevin. On that one, Kevin, you not only get a seat, you actually get a couch so that you can stretch out comfortably. Oh, well, that's fine,
1: then. but we are definitely a floating, moving target with all those people in here, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely sure, and and as we say in uh, in Montreal, uh, merci beaucoup. This was an absolute, absolute thrill, uh, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much. And folks, uh, Muscle Memory is the new album. Do, do pick that up. Uh, Alan, up to you.
2: Uh, Kevin, I'd, I'd just say it's been a, a, a pleasure um, talking with you. Um, I did actually see 10CC play one time, oh God, when I was a nipper. Um, <laughs> it was probably somewhere <laughs> slightly in the east of London. Some, some, I think it was some college in the east of London. And the band was silent. Right. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a terrific night.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, chaps. Yes. What was it like managing Guns N' Roses then?
0: Oh, I got to keep this on. Got got to keep the tape rolling for this answer. Go ahead, Alan. And and he also managed I got got to And and great white Cause as well.
1: Where, yeah, cuz where I'm sitting they look like a handful. Uh,
2: well, Kevin, uh, the, 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 there's an old saw that comes up every now and then. Be careful what you wish for. And as <laughs> I I started out at Virgin as the van driver. And as I got deeper and deeper into into music, I fantasized about having my own Rolling Stones. And I think had the band stayed together, we might've had something that could have been comparable. The thing I find overwhelming about the Rolling Stones is the huge catalog of recordings. And, of course, Hmm. GNR don't have that huge catalog of recordings. But I'll I'll tell you this. Um, If I was driving home down the 405 and I felt everything was okay and everything was fine, then I knew I had one phone call I'd yet to return because every single day there was something. And it was the, the moment I signed the contract, In September of 1976 was the moment when the carefree aspect of being in rock and roll evaporated from my life. It it was all stress and anxiety and pressure from that moment on. Wow. Okay.
1: You
0: should have
1: have worked with... I should have worked with what?
0: I said he should have definitely worked with the Godly and Cream and Trevor Horn and all the British folks because they're a lot more accommodating than Guns N' Roses and Great White and that whole L.A. crisis scene, right?
1: Well, well, I almost got to work with Aerosmith and I got flown out to – my wife and I were flown out to some bizarre place, Peoria or somewhere to meet them. Um, And we had dinner with Stephen Tyler and then we went to a gig and uh, various phone calls and about 15 different treatments. And, uh, of course, it never happened in the end. The only thing I remember about when we landed in Peoria, we were staying at a bizarre German-run hotel and we were kind of looking around exploring and we looked through... An office door, and the wall was covered in Nazi memorabilia. And we thought we better get the fuck out of here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah, I could imagine. And 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 I've heard stories that everybody in Aerosmith is gets along really great, but Steven is the is the ballbuster, and it's it's hard to get stuff by him. But uh, hey, who knows? Actually, Alan, you toured with Aerosmith, huh? So.
2: We spent six months on the road with Aerosmith and uh, as far as Mr. Tyler is concerned, he and I came to a, um, we had an issue one afternoon where he had hired a tattoo artist to come in and touch up the band's tattoos and he spent the whole afternoon badgering me to get the Guns N' Roses logo tattooed on my chest. Thankfully, I prevailed, and it's not there. Why
1: why would he he do that? (laughs) Mm.
2: (laughs) Why would Stephen do a lot of the things he's done? Exactly. Yeah, I can't see Trevor Horn doing that. I can't (laughs) see anybody I
0: know doing that, frankly. Yeah. Can you you imagine? Well, uh, anyway.
1: That goes goes back to my opinion of America. Period. But there you go. That's great
2: story. Exactly. <laughs> uh, there exactly. we go. Exactly. How it, how how are you surviving in the COVID? Uh, are you keeping your uh, sanity?
1: Uh well, yes. What's left of it? I mean, I'm, it's not made a huge dent on me because I work from home mostly anyway. So, from in that respect, it's absolutely fine. It's just and occasionally you're an, and you're it's. We're in the countryside, pretty much. So it's like, you know, it'd be nice to go out for dinner every now and again or have some friends around and forget about it. So it's that kind of vacuum thing that's, that's starting to get a little bit weird at the moment. But, you know, we've survived. We've stayed sensible. But there are so many people here, like I imagine in America, more so kind of questioning questioning whether this is real or how serious it is, and it's a conspiracy. And we shouldn't be wearing masks and all that stuff. And it's like, fuck that! I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do everything possible because I don't know. So I'm going to wear a mask all the time, even when I go to sleep. I'm going to wear a mask. So it's it's just a weird time to be alive. But thankfully, we
2: still are.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we're,
2: cur- we're cursed with interesting times. Kevin, I've got to say, it's been an absolute pleasure to have a have a chat with you and uh, again um, I, I gotta say that uh, for me personally Not In Love is one of the all time singles and just an incredible thing to have created
1: Thank you very much it's very kind of you, both of you
0: Thank you and uh, uh, hopefully we'll do this again soon someday, I, I'd love to get more, there's so much more, it's so rich but you know <laughs> Thank you, thank you
2: Okay, guys. Thank you. To to you. Cheers. Bye. Have a
0: good night. Bye-bye now.
1: And you. Bye-bye.